This is Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host, Rhonda Feynman, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guest today is Cindy Pearson, the Executive Director of the National Women's Health Network, an organization which was created in 1975 to promote women's health and give women a greater voice in the healthcare system in the United States. They work to fulfill this mission in a number of ways. The National Women's Health Network testifies before Congress and the FDA. They publicize women's health issues through the media. They join with individuals and local and national groups promoting women's health. And currently, the network is part of a national initiative which is working to make sure that women's concerns are addressed in health care reform. The National Women's Health Network also researches and provides unbiased, independent and accurate health information so that women can make informed choices in, the he- in their health care decisions. And the National Women Health Network's Executive Director, Cindy Pearson, who's on the phone with us today from Washington, D.C., has extensive experience in, in advocating for women's health. She's served on the boards of the Reproductive Health Technologies Project, the National Breast Cancer Coalition, the Campaign for Women's Health, and D.C. Women's Council on AIDS, the National Action on uh, plan on breast cancer and the advisory board of our bodies ourselves. She's also received received uh, the Keystone Award for ad- advocacy for women's health research in recognition of the network's leading role in advocating for the creation of the Office of Research on Women's Health at the National Institute of Health. Well, thank you for being with us today, Cindy Pearson. You're welcome, Rhonda. I'm glad to be talking with you this um, to explore some of the issues. Yeah. Um, that's uh, that's terrific. Um, so there's so much going on um, uh, in terms of what the National Women's Health Network has done over the years, and um, I know I'm interested. There are lots of ways to go here, but let's let's find out uh, a little bit about what you're working on right now and what's what's up um, currently in in terms of advocating for women's health. Well, what we're working on right now is. Um, the, the, it was the gleam in the eye of passionate women's health activists 35 years ago when, when the founders of the network and the, the women who provided the energy to start it out of nothing, you know, with the first donation to the network um, was, was $15 and it was used to buy postage stamps. Unbelievable. <laughs> to get to more women. So this, 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 this effort to bring women's voices to Washington, D.C. was started by women who were passion-driven. And their passion often flowed from outrage about mistreatment. That was very... Mistreatment of women in healthcare was rife in the 1970s. However, the gleam in the eye was also... We don't just want to make it better for those of us who do have access to healthcare. We want to make it inclusive for those of us who don't. And over the last 35 years of our organization's existence, that got a lot better before just in the last few years it started to, it got a lot worse, I should say, Mm -hmm. before just in the last few years it started to get a lot better. Women played a huge role in the expansion of healthcare that started happening 
three years ago when the Affordable Care Act passed, and women are badly, badly needed to play an even huger role in making it work right for us. And so, that's a lot of what we're doing right now. You know, so, I just I got off a call about that. Just a <laughs> few minutes ago. To talk with you now. Right. So, um, so. I want to talk about certain specifics about women's health, of course, but perhaps we can talk about um, a little bit of the uh, about how the the um, the the new health care law is going to really affect women immediately. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you. We shouldn't. Um, we could spend the whole hour on that, and we shouldn't because there's so yes. many specific. Yeah, but issues. I, I think but this might briefly, be of interest to yeah. Yeah, just briefly, the, this is a big and important step forward in a system that needs even more. So the system that we're in now, most people get their health insurance through an employer or through a family member who has employer-provided um, um, insurance. And most of those insurance companies are for-profit, not all. The, the Obamacare system expands on that and reforms the health insurance world somewhat so they can't deny you care when you're sick, can't cap how much care you get when you've spent a certain amount, and can't say no to enrolling you if you have any kind of pre-existing conditions and have to sell plans that meet your needs, including women's needs, including childbirth, including well-woman exams. Um, that's all great. That's what's happening. Uh, it started already. Um, young adults can stay on their parents' plan, um, which insurers didn't used to let, and now they have to. Uh, and new insurance plans have to cover well-woman exams and contraception and breastfeeding counseling and supplies. So um, we're going in the right direction. Even when we get there, which is a big hump to get, the 15, 20% of people who don't have insurance now covered, yeah. we still have a lot more reforms to do to make the system more humane and um, less expensive and all those sorts of things. But this is a big hump to get probably 27 million people enrolled in new coverage in the next year. And and just I feel great about that and proud of being part of a of, of a women in consumer movement that's making it happen. That's great. That's really important work. And, uh, you know, I just want to point out that recently the National Women's Health Network received a uh, an award, the Grassroots Activism yeah. Award. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that from the National really Breast Cancer. Moment. I got to accept that award uh, myself on behalf of the network, and um, it was given to us by an organization we have high respect for, the National Breast Cancer Coalition, talk about people who've made a difference. They've, they've really made a difference in how much money is spent on breast cancer research and how the role of educated consumers in deciding what research is important. So they awarded the network um, this grassroots activism uh, recognition because we championed a women's health question that no one else wanted to tackle. We sunk our teeth into it over years and years and years and just would not let go. And that was the question of whether hormones taken after menopause um, increase the risk of breast cancer and if 
they do, was there any offsetting benefit? Did they make women healthy in some other way that maybe women would want to trade it off? And we, we sunk our teeth into that because that was a big marketing claim. You know, pharmaceutical companies, particularly one that has the patent on Premarin and Prempro, had, had educated a generation of doctors to believe that women's bodies were deficient after menopause and that our hormones needed to be replaced. And that was a, a really genius marketing strategy, but it was never backed up by good science. I mean, some of us do have hot flashes. That's definitely associated with changing <laughs> So I've muscles, heard. But, yeah, right. <laughs> but that's not the same thing as being deficient and not able to live healthily. I mean, I would go to scientific conferences and... and and um, people with credentials after their names, physicians and PhDs, would say, you know, it's deficiency disease, and, and deficiency disease, you replace what's deficient, just like, you know, diabetes, you replace the insulin. We need to replace these hormones. And little old us would stand up at the mic or write our fact sheet or write our little pamphlets and say, prove it. Prove, <laughs> prove it. it. You know, you've got, you have a sexist idea that has been grabbed on by a mega marketing machine and you all believe it, but you don't have proof. So we finally got the federal government to start a study. And by the time they started the study, these drugs were in the top 10 most prescribed drugs in the country. Right. And 40% of women were taking these hormones. Millions and millions of women were taking these hormones most of whom did not have symptoms at the moment. We never begrudge anyone saying, I desperately need a good night's sleep. I've tried everything else. I understand this has risks, but I want to try hormones. We never begrudge that, as long as they know there's some other things they can try first. But the majority of women who were taking hormones 15 years ago were taking them because a doctor had told them it would help them be healthier, prevent heart disease, Right. uh, look more youthful, have more vitality, um, uh, prevent fractures, and maybe even prevent Alzheimer's. And aside from preventing fractures, none of those things had ever been proven, and it turned out that none of those things were true, did not prevent heart disease, did not prevent Alzheimer's, didn't even help women feel more energetic. Um, they actually found a way to study that, which was pretty impressive. And our fear that it increased breast cancer was proven true, particularly the combination of estrogen plus synthetic progesterone. Right. And because no one who made money off these drugs would ever pay for the study, it wasn't privately funded, as most medical research is. It was publicly funded. Our tax dollars paid for it. And those wonderful people at NIH spoke to their bosses, us. They went down downtown. They rented a room in the National Press Club. They spoke, uh, they gave a press conference to the general public before, at the same time as they told doctors and the company that made the pills. So women got the news directly. And once women got the good information, they made really good decisions. And most of, many women who found out for the first time they were taking it for an unproven and now disproven hoped for benefit, just stopped because they didn't need it. So um, uh, use of uh, uh, prescription hormone therapy uh, dropped by half within several months and has stayed at that low rate. And within months, the breast cancer
cancer rate started dropping. We now estimate that 18,000 women a year do not get breast cancer who would have otherwise if they hadn't been able to get this information and the, the um, prescriptions had stayed at their previous high rate. That's extraordinary. That's the biggest drop of breast cancer that's ever happened in the U.S. That is extraordinary, so, and and, he, and and the research that you know there's still controversy about about things like environment, which is yes, for some absolutely. of us I, 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 kind of in, unbelievable for some of us, but <laughs> but uh, um, because that big drop is only an eight percent drop, right? So ninety percent of the cases that used to happen still happen. Right. Um, and and as you say, a lot of controversy about where is all that rest of that breast cancer coming, coming from. from. But so that so the work that you do, you, do you do these? I know you're that you're working with uh, the National Breast Cancer Coalition and other groups for about breast cancer in particular. But who does the research, or how how do you work to to make these, you know, to to create these studies or or instigate them? So. Or? Yeah, that's right, because I just described something that affected the whole country. Yes. And here we are. We're a group with a budget a little over a million dollars a year. Mm. We have um, eight staff, and we're small in comparison to what we accomplished. And how did we do that? So our, our core strategic approach is to look at an important issue and make an analysis of how what changes are needed to make it better, and what women, how women can use that information to make informed decisions at the in the here and now. And at the heart of that is we believe that informed lay people who are interested in an issue can educate themselves and make good um, uh, ideas. Uh, proposals about how to make a difference. So in the world of health, there's lots of great examples of that. But that 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 approach of in, in engaged, informed lay people um, looking at something, studying it, and making recommendations, that's civic engagement. That's the heart of civic engagement. And we turn that to women's health. We are like our bodies ourselves in that way, which is the iconic book, starting from the days when there was no information about women's bodies mm-hmm. directly available to individual women. That's, that's the dark ages now. Now there's information about us and our bodies everywhere we look, and, right. our, and our challenge is how to tell if it's trustworthy. Uh, exactly. That's the, yes. <laughs> and that's that where you come that, in. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. that We do try to come in there, but we take that core approach. We study an issue, and we... Um, we look for, you know, uh, what, what, what do women tell us when they call for health information? What questions do they ask us? Right. What, do we, what can we share with them about what's known? And then when do we have to say, you know, there really isn't enough known about that? Like just jumping to a completely different example. Yes. Western medicine does not understand at all why women get uterine fibroids, which are benign growths of the tissue of the uterus. They don't cause cancer. They can't kill you. And for many women, they don't cause symptoms. But for some women, they do. They can be physically uncomfortable Mm -hmm. or because the tissue has kind of expanded through these benign growths, 
the tissue that supports the uterine lining that gets sloughed off during menstruation has expanded way beyond what a woman wants to put up with. Right. Lots of heavy bleeding. Bleeding. Mm-hmm. And that, Pain. you know, 20 years ago, I did a little mini research project of how much is the National Institutes of Health doing? I found one researcher with uterine tissue in test tubes. Oh, my. <laughs> and, and, and yet, when we talk to women particularly women in their 30s, 40s, maybe early 50s, we call a lot of questions about, my doctor says I have fibroids and I need a hysterectomy, do I? Mm-hmm. I um, my doctor says I have fibroids and I should worry, but they don't cause me any symptoms, do I need to worry? I have symptoms, what can I do? I don't want a hysterectomy, what can I do? We got a lot of questions. This was, this. if you ranked, you know, just randomly surveyed women and ranked, what are the issues that you know about your health that you have questions about or that bother you? That would have been up there. You would you, you'd get answers in a national survey, and yet at NIH, it just didn't rate. You would never because know that in in the areas where um, uh, where the research was being done that this is something exactly. we should be looking at. Yeah, yeah, and that you mentioned in my introduction that the network, the National Women's Health Network, is recognized for our role in. Um, grassroots advocacy and yes. informed um, guidance that led to the founding of the National Institutes of Health Office of Research on Women's Health, and um, that is another thing we're we're very proud of. It's it's no longer the case that individual scientists up at NIH just are are left to their own devices to think up um, what's important about women's health or um, or not. They there's there's a there's an office there that is. Um, trying to percolate and permeate mm-hmm. through that enormous, you know, campus full of scientists um, so, and the network of NIH-funded researchers across the country to make sure that they they listen to us uh, wow. and and they hear what we say us us broadly us women yeah um, yeah uh, so, that that our concerns like endometriosis interstitial cystitis. Um, things that don't necessarily put us in the hospital and so don't come up on a tally sheet when uh, someone looks at what are the leading causes of hospitalization um, but so, that are very important to women. So and getting back, you know, this is a great example in terms of hysterectomies and fibroids um, based on mm-hmm. the work that, that the network has done, the National Women's Health Network. Are we seeing that peop- women are making different choices about hysterectomies or that, that the doctors are making different recommendations? Has the, have we seen it on that level? Slowly. Yeah. Slowly. Some of the, some mm-hmm. the oldest doctors who are the, are the most stuck in their ways, I think, are still too often recommending a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, what has changed, though, is the, what used to be routine of take the uterus, take the ovaries. And that was really a sexist attitude that if you're past childbearing or past a certain age, what do you need those ovaries for anyway? Um, that, was, that was ignorant. <laughs> and yes. advances in science have shown that for most women, even many years past the menopause, their their ovaries are still putting out measurable um, amounts of estrogen. Maybe not not progesterone, but estrogen is important. And and um, why take the ovaries when you don't need to? We, that really has changed. And so the percent of women having hysterectomies has changed. We're nowhere near uh, where we could be, though. And and I think some of that is 
alternative approaches are only getting promoted when when a company has a an in, a financial interest in promoting them. So some of the alternatives that involve devices, surgical devices, are getting some good attention, and 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 we're we're proud of that, applaud that. But other approaches that we still don't know enough about, you know, is, is there anything women can do? Well, sure there is. Either, right, exactly. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, again, my, you know, as, a, as a, an acupuncturist and a doctor of Asian medicine, you know, we deal with this every day. But I also mm-hmm. deal with women every day who are saying, my doctor says, uh, you know, this is important. I should exactly, get a hysterectomy, exactly. and, you know. Exactly. And, and one of the advances that the network was part of and some other very powerful and strong, wonderful groups were part of was getting the NIH to fund more research into all, what they call complementary and alternative medicine, which is, you know, alternative to yes. the, the tradition that came to the United States, you know, 140 years ago with Johns Hopkins Medical School and mm-hmm. what they call the scientific method, which is, you know, very powerful, gotten us a lot of great stuff, but... Um, excludes other traditions. There are other ways. Now there is some NIH funding, and what we struggle is we can put pressure on NIH to fund other types of modalities and approaches to dealing with important problems, like we put pressure on them to look for other approaches that were effective at um, treating hot flashes so that women would have an effective alternative that wasn't the hormones that, that are powerfully and wonderfully effective, but a little bit risky. Um, <laughs> and one that they just found really good success with was clinical hypnosis. Uh-huh. Learning to do hypnosis from someone who is themselves trained. Um, now, who's going to go out and, and mark that? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem. So, you know, when one alternative for fibroids is a medical de- surgical device, that um, oh, it's very that, comfortable that, for a certain population. Yes. Yeah, that that surgical device gets marketed, and and it it does it 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 it, it gives women another alternative that's not a full blown hysterectomy and that can be quite effective. But if another alternative is something that isn't patentable, isn't marketable by a company, then it's hard to get it into the healthcare system and change practice. Very frustrating. The challenge of our of our U.S. system. Exactly. Well, yes. Let, let me just um, say that uh, that we are. This is Healthy Options. Um, you're listening to WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, your host today, and we're speaking with Cindy Pearson, Executive Director of the National Women's Health Network. And um, if you and want, Rhonda, can I say how people can find us? Yeah, I was just going to give the uh, the web. Uh, yes, but you feel free. I would literally. I have it in my hand right now. So <laughs> great minds. Because um, uh, sometimes I listen to the radio when I I am in my car and should not be looking at any other devices. That's but right. Stop I right listen. now, any of you. No yeah, texting. Okay. Right. <laughs> so sometimes I listen, like I'm sure some other people do, when I'm sitting near a device where I could look something up and. Um, you could always find us by our name, but our web address is our initials, nwhn.org, and that's a resource for a lot of great information, meaty, fact sheet kind of, you might want to, you know, print this out and read it. Yes. We also engage on women's health topics through Twitter and Facebook and have growing numbers of people who get information from us that way. And 
the way to find us in those um, spaces is the and W-H-N. Say and that I again? I invite anyone who's listening and interested to check us out. Say that last thing again, W. The N W H N is the way um, someone who likes to get information through Twitter or Facebook. Is, is that a Z or an that. S? Z is in zebra? I'm sorry, it's on the radio. The sometimes. initials of our organization. Oh, of course. See? National N is in Nancy, W H N. Yes, there we go. Yeah, right. thanks. Thanks Thank you. For no, I'm that for listeners. It's it's a little tricky. Yes. Well, good. And that'll all be um, when it's archived, and it'll be um, uh, the, all those. I'll have links to all of those websites as well, so people Thank can you. always do that. What I wanted to talk about a little bit more of the research. Um, you know, there have been some different uh, recommendations about Pap smears right now and mm-hmm. cervical mm-hmm. Uh, cancer, and um, I know that whenever there's a change of, of a recommendation that says less screening is important, some people get really upset uh, just on the yeah. idea that more should be better. And I know that right. the, that the, the network has for years, I mean years, has been saying, you know, I don't know if cer- cervical cells were, are, are grow very slowly. We're no, not sure that we need um, to intervene a- as often as, as, as some might think. So what's, what's yeah, the latest research on that? Some, the, the latest research confirms what researchers had believed for almost 20 years that women, unless they are immunocompromised, uh-huh. women can safely, very, very safely have cervical cancer screening just about once every three years. And um, it's, there's, it, it's sort of more techno-sophisticated than it was in the days, maybe around when you and I got our first pap smear, right. when it was really a scrape. And oh, a yeah. smear. That's why, in fact, I keep saying smear because that was smearing the cells on a slide. That's old school. Ah. <laughs> I'm supposed to say test because now there's a little, like a little mascara brush that swirls in the cervix, get cells that way. They go into liquid. That, that, that enables the um, specialists who look at cells to see them more clearly. And all that... Um, And as you say, coupled with the fact that that part of our body, while it does develop cancer, unless there's an underlying problem with the immune system, very, very, very slowly. And in most cases where cells seem to be changing, irritated, maybe a little disordered, the body writes itself. So looking more often only lets you see more things that probably don't need to be dealt with anyway. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I was do you want to talk about the, the involvement of HPV? And, yes, and, absolutely. Yeah. Because yes. that, was, that was pretty controversial. It's clear now that um, this is, I can't resist saying this because I know your listeners are interested in environmental issues, but 50 years ago, the environment played a very large role in cervical cancer. And we solved that problem by two ways by indoor plumbing that made it easier to wash clothes and by workplace safety standards that kept workers from being exposed to as many toxic chemicals in the air and, you know, on their body. Wait, so what is this washing clothes? What, what? It, it, you know, people would, men would come in from jobs 
so washing clothes and washing the body um, drops cervical cancer rate with no other intervention. Wow. Now, that's very, very old school. That's very, very old. old. But I couldn't resist telling that story. So cervical cancer rates in the U.S. were already lower. Then we got screening. That made cervical cancer rates even lower by finding um, the, the precancers and treating them before they developed into full-blown cancer. Mm-hmm. But still there were some, and where were they coming from? Now we know that they're linked, most of them, to a virus called human papilloma, and that virus has many forms, and some of them make warts on the surface of our skin, and a few of them can infect the cervix as well as the mouth. And in the cervix, usually the body clears them away. But a few unfortunate women who in other ways seem to have healthy immune systems get stuck with a persistent infection. Mm-hmm. And that, if, if they're unlucky and that persists for years and years and years, that can support the growth of cancer. So at age 30, adding a test for HPV helps identify the women who might be on a course towards cancer. Doing the test before 30 isn't worth it. We're totally, we totally advise against it because almost everyone is infected with this virus at some point or another, and the body clears it on its own. So don't even bother to look in the 20s. Oh. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of the, the current you know, 21st century where we're at. Well, what about the... Start your screening at age 21. Don't do it more often than every three years unless you find something bad. Don't add HPV um, screening till you're 30 or over. And uh, if you have ever had to have your uterus removed for other reasons, you don't need screening at all mm. for this cancer. For this kind of cancer. Yeah. So what, what about the vaccine, the HPV vaccine we've heard so yeah, much about? Yeah, that's where things really got controversial from a, a lot of different sides. So yes. our Puritan history as a country <laughs> flared up. And just like it's flared up multiple times in the last 100 years, if we make the consequences of sex less bad, more people who shouldn't will have sex. And uh, that is about controlling behavior, not about supporting health. And it's actually wrong, <laughs> making the consequences, the risky consequences of sex less likely to happen doesn't support more people having risky sex or, you know, it's, it's just not, it's a, it's a fear-based tactic that doesn't, isn't correct. So the, there was opposition to the HPV vaccine from that strain, the same kind of people who oppose um, you know, condoms coming at the drugstore and and birth control clinics at schools and all that. Right. Um, but then there was some concern from health activists that this vaccine might have um, unintended, you know, consequences, risky, uh, you know, side effects. And that's not a, a crazy fear. There have been examples where some vaccines were introduced. They seemed safe in the pre-testing. They got into widespread use, and an un- unexpected uh, side effect was observed. And and the, um, so it's not crazy to no. to wonder at first. And um, we were on the side of 
This has passed every FDA test. It deserves to be approved. It's safe to use, but let's not mandate its use on anybody of any age until we go through the natural, you know, three years or so of let's see what happens. Right. Um, and we're past that now, so it's pretty clear that there's there are no um, no unexpected um, uh, uh, complications that come with the HPV vaccine that should make someone cautious about using it. it and we um, don't know if that's more effective after thirty, considering the testing, or I know they're talking about giving it to young women, young young girls as well. What? Well, just like everything, you know, you get your vaccination for yellow fever before you leave the country and are exposed to yellow fever. You don't go to right. the place where there's yellow fever and drink the water and then get your vaccine. So, just on that pure logic model, it's best to vaccinate. Um, before sexual activity starts, which mm-hmm. means roundabout puberty, um, mm-hmm. uh, to be to 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 do the to give the vaccine the best chance to protect as many people as possible, mm-hmm. and because of because in the U.S. at least almost everyone's exposed by the time they're um, 30, the tests that showed it was effective were concentrated in women uh, under about I think age 26. So that's where the best evidence is, hmm. and also the sort of if you've if you've lived to after thirty, you 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 might you might have felt your own natural immunity. I don't I don't know that we know that completely, but we sort of um, your vulnerable period hmm. for infection is pretty much over. It's a different, and different. what you need to concentrate on after age thirty is right. uh, a. a sensible approach to screening Mm. just to make sure that you haven't gotten an an infection that isn't clearing. So we are speaking, by the way, to uh, our guest is Cindy Pearson, Executive Director of the National Women's Health Network, and we're speaking about uh, research and ways that the network has has, uh, advocated for women's health, and we're discussing some specifics about uh, different issues that have come up in terms of uh, women's health, and you can always uh, get even more information at nwhn.org, so don't forget that. Um, Cindy, (coughs) pardon me, Um, I know uh, for a lot of women the idea of osteoporosis is is another another, uh, issue that comes up quite often. And, uh, and postmenopausal women and such, and and then there's the I know that the the network has done research about the biofascinates, the Sazamax and some of the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I know that some of our listeners would be very interested to know uh, if they're not getting other aspects of how to treat um, bone loss or or the the threat of that. Uh, what some of the latest research on on those kinds of drugs uh, are, and I, I, I think you could probably Love speak to, to that. Love to talk about that, Rhonda, because that's, that's one of these um, double-edged sword kind of medicines. Uh, I spoke at the original FDA hearing to consider its approval, the very first of these kinds of osteoporosis medicines, uh, in favor of it because it was a non-hormonal option. And, and prior to the very first one of these, types of drugs, which had the brand name Fosamax, but now there's a lot of them. A lot of others, yeah. A lot of others. Um, you know, it was hormones, and, and, and even back then we knew that hormones caused the increased the risk of blood clots. Now we know that certain combinations increase the risk of breast cancer. So 
um, we needed an alternative, and a non-hormonal um, alternative was good. So we were in favor of them. But then when the company came back and said, okay, we got the approval to prevent fractures, but now we want the approval to prevent bone loss, we said, you know, this is not – we're kind of worried. We're a little worried that this is going to go um, too far to too many women. And when I say bone loss, I, w- I want to clarify – You know, we build bone when we're young, and then we have a natural process of losing bone. And most people lose a little bit of height as they age. Um, Some people lose too much. They stoop over. They're hunched. Um, That can go on to the point where they're actually uncomfortable um, and, and maybe even um, experience fractures uh, other parts of their body or are impaired in their um, what they can do. It's hard to make the bed or something like that. But And so there's, from a um, scientist's perspective, that's all the same process. That little bit of loss of height with age is the same process as the person who's horribly hunched over or the person who's walking down the street and, and collapses because their hip, um, their hip joint has fractured. Mm-hmm. We see those things, though, from a consumer perspective, as very different. You know, if you and I and our friends, if we die happily at age 95, an inch shorter than we were when we were 45, but nothing else ever went wrong with our bones, well, then we're going to feel fine about you know, our bones. Um, and what what we're, we're, the company sort of outmaneuvered us with the FDA. Uh is they got the FDA to approve prevention with these drugs based on that loss of height. Because to lose height, you can lose it with the discs in between your vertebra kind of being less spongy and squishy, Mm -hmm. or you can lose it, and this is pretty common, with little tiny micro fractures of the vertebra, things that you don't feel, that you'd never know, you don't have any symptoms, but you can see them on an X-ray. And these companies got the FDA to approve effectiveness based on x-rays of the vertebra and counting those little micro fractures no. and measuring them. Right. I know. And I'm so I mean, frustrated. Really, if we just send everybody to some yoga. Over, for <sighs> women who lose four inches of height, for women who've seen every older relative in their family, you know, suffer, for women who whose relatives have had hip fractures, for women who had to take um, medicine earlier in their life that leached the strength from their bones. It's not a bad thing that these drugs are on the market. They're not totally, you know, wrong. But this idea that a a (laughs) health-promoting approach to our osteoporosis is to approve drugs for prevention based on the ability to change the little micro fractures and affect, you know, how much height you lose as your age is really been bad for women's health. Right. Really been bad for women's health. Because a lot of those medicines, the that whole class is, is creating um, a whole slew. Of, I, I believe it's affecting people's hearts. Is that is that correct? Or? The heart isn't completely figured out, but there are there is some evidence that at least in one study, that irregular heartbeat yeah. called atrial fibrillation is more common. But what's now really pretty well proven is that in rare cases, 
women go walking down the street and they don't have that hip fracture that they were trying to prevent, they have a thigh fracture, the long bone of the thigh, which is tough as nails in most of us, right? You've got to be in a car crash to fracture your thigh if you're not on a football field. Right. <laughs> That's, these are so unusual that we've been able to figure out based on really a, hun- a few hundred, uh, maybe now a few thousand cases that they're linked to long-term use of these bisphosphonates, Fosamax, um, um, uh, I, I can't remember all the brand names off the top yeah. of my head, but there's a bunch of them. And I sat one day at the FDA and listened to a dozen women take turns standing up and speaking about their experience with a fracture, every single one of them had been healthy to start with. Mm. They were all encouraged to start on these drugs because they had the measurement of bone loss, which every single one of us would have a measurement of bone loss if we're old enough. It just happens. (laughs) It's the way our bodies are. We are going to lose bone as Mm. we age. Well, I don't even know if any of them had even lost any measurable height, but you know, they were all on these drugs for prevention. And, 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 it's, and they yes. were the terrible, unlucky ones who, who experienced this thigh fracture. Some of them now have metal pins in oh, their goodness. thighs to put that bone back together. So we've called on the FDA. The FDA has taken one step, which is it, 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 they say consider getting off them after three to five years if you're on, if you're on for prevention. We want them to go further and say, forget about this forget prevention. Preve- forget this prevention. But then, of this course... This is not the way. What we haven't we talked about is the, uh, the, pro- the for-profit marketing. Exactly. There's wonderful ways to prevent fractures. Yes, there are many, many ways. That don't make anybody ways. any profit. Yes. Um, some of them are fall safety in your home. Make sure you've got good lights. You don't have rugs that slip out from under you. How about... Um, make sure you can go in and out of your home without ice on the steps. And then some of them are um, health-promoting behaviors, like staying um, active. Even if active is just that walk around the neighborhood um, or walk, uh, walking the dog or walking with your grandkids. Um, you know, doesn't, this doesn't have to be – it has to have gravity involved. The swimming pool won't do it. But aside from that, even if you're not feeling the urge for exercise, if you can walk at a – at, at a pace, a comfortable pace that's like a healthy adult, you are better able to protect yourself if you fall and, and prevent a fracture. So you can prevent falls. You can prevent fractures when you fall. There's a lot. And this is not even talking anything about diet or calcium. This is just habits and your environment. Well, um, yes, in, we, in, we do in, know, yeah, things like yoga, their weight-bearing exercises, tai chi, uh, there are very many different ways to maintain exactly. the health of the bones. And, you know, you did mention calcium, and I know that uh, there's some recent studies that calcium intake is uh, creating a problem with heart, uh, the heart, yeah. and we don't, and there's, uh, what do we believe? Is that a good study, or we know what, I, I don't Whoa, know. Such a mess. Such a mess, Rhonda. We, we commissioned, we have this wonderful writer who's a medical librarian. She blogs for Our Body Ourselves. She writes a column for us every other issue of our print newsletter. We asked her to review the studies on calcium and write just a, okay, what do we know? And 
it was really hard to it was really on the one hand on the other hand so where i am on this is everything we know about supplements tells us that it's better if you take it in through food for on long term you know uh, you know herbs are medicines and using them in extracted form for medicines it makes sense animals in addition to humans do that but the supplements of what has been extracted from everyday food is better off if you get it in your food. So mm-hmm. there's that approach of trying to eat a calcium-rich diet. Then there's the take a calcium supplement question. And <laughs> uh, well, the studies are confusing. Well, it's Some a question of what find form a, as well. a real benefit on bone. Others don't and we don't understand if it's if it's the ones that don't the women were doing pretty well on their own and didn't need the supplement or maybe the supplement was too low dose or and maybe so there are different forms of calcium you know yes, which kind are you using are that you, hmm? that would be useful to for your for you to speak to that well, you know, I, I I don't have all the information on it, but there are, there are definitely there's uh, there calcium there are just different aspects. Of I was hoping you would remember the exact name. I know I was I, I was too. In front of me, I forget the exact oh, God, name. But goodness gracious, you are right, Rhonda. There is a difference in the type, um, and so it's you know you can't do everything else wrong and take a calcium supplement and and have that make it all be okay. <laughs> I so know. I'm... Maybe we should just say that that calcium supplements are not something that women should absolutely avoid, nor are they well, the answer. There, are, there, are, there are companies and and people I've worked with who who work with uh, we work with food based um, calcium as aspects mm-hmm. and um, and then there are the ones that come from ossified animal bones and that's a whole different idea of what you're really um, going to be absorbing and then there's another aspect from oyster shells or something like that and that's a completely yeah, yeah. different form and I and I'm gonna I will I, I will be able to answer that and in, in, in more detail I'm sorry I don't have it now and, and we I'll, have we have I'll get something on, on that too. yeah <laughs> but just to say that even we pride ourselves at being able to look at scientific studies and sort out um, and talk about them in, in, in kind of layperson's terms to, to put it into useful form for individuals. We're, we, we are challenged by this one, I have to say. And, and <laughs> yes, as we, we all are. And um, yeah. so, but, so that question is still, and, and, and I, I will say a number of women, when I told them I was uh, going to speak with you, I did get a question. I can't listen, but ask her about calcium. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We'll lead people to our website. And we'll do that we'll, at, at uh, nwhn.org. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm going to write something on my website, too, about, uh, about this. Uh, and so we'll, we'll, we can get to, get to that as, uh, on that level, and, uh, and we'll be in touch, too to see if we can, uh, you know, compare notes <laughs> from our point <laughs> great, of view on great, that. Great. Um, again, we, uh, this is WERU. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we are speaking with Cindy Pearson, uh, Executive Director of the National Women's Health Network, uh, a great uh, advocacy organization, and, and uh, that, by the way, is absolutely independent, not taking any money from pharmaceuticals or from uh, any other source except members and uh, right and um yeah we don't even take vitamin company money no vitamin <laughs> company money no money yeah 
Which means uh, that uh, it, all the uh, actual citizens' advocacy uh, support is all really important. <laughs> for mm -hmm. That's right. There are some progressive foundations that support our work um, more in the reproductive and access, reproductive health and access to health care arenas with support for our work on um, drug safety and protecting women from unnecessary harm from uh, drugs and devices is really from individuals. Okay. It's, it's just, and, and, and we feel um, very honored to have been trusted by thousands and thousands of um, men as well as women over the last 35 years who've made it possible for us to do this work and to take tackle things like that do hormones cause breast cancer question, which took decades of work. Decades. And, and no one was going to give us a grant to do that. I, and I also really taking on the idea of the for-profit motive uh, for selling women medicines. And, and that's been quite extraordinary. Um, uh, and really a relatively small group <laughs> when you really think about it and, and doing these yeah, kinds of, yeah. uh, of positive work. And I, I, wanna, I know that you also work with uh, idea of, of challenging devices. And I was reading about the, the work that you have been doing legislatively, and, um, and you do work legislatively, about surgical mesh, that there was um, mm. some work mm. uh, about some women have prolapse or have... Um, yeah. Uh, Urinary yeah. incontinence or difficulty, and, and I, I wanted to talk about that because that is much more common than um, than we right, talk about right. normally. It's, yes, Rhonda, you know, 40 years ago it was hush-hush if a woman had breast cancer, and we have Betty Ford, um, really, you know, First Lady Ford, to thank for being someone who was willing to say publicly, yep, I got diagnosed with breast cancer and I'm being treated. And that opened that up. But no one stands out there and says, yep, I've got urinary incontinence and, yeah. and, you know, I need to do X, Y, and Z about it. So it's something that women struggle with on their own. Women often talk to their gynecologist about it because it's, it's down there, you know, <laughs> to use, you know, casual terms. And what a surgeon is, is usually going to offer is surgery. And surgery... Um, can be helpful. I don't want. I don't want to say that is always the wrong way to go. I, I sure. know and have each um, case heard is from women who have been very successful. But when surgeons use medical devices, what even they don't completely realize, and certainly we as the patients aren't likely to know, is it's very unusual for the FDA to insist that the device be studied for its effectiveness in humans before it's approved. Whoa. And that's a quirk of the regulatory and legislative history. Um, the FDA was created before there were any devices, you know, besides a scalpel and a forceps. And um, <laughs> it didn't get the power to regulate devices until the Dalcon Shield, the IUD oh, yes. scandal of the 70s. That was a terribly Horrible. designed, flawed device, hurt many women, and there was a good legislative response. But the power of the companies said, well, don't make us do more uh, studies than our competitors. And if our competitors are selling something that's already on the market, if we have to do a study to get something like it on the market, that's too much. And that logic 
turned into the biggest loophole you've ever seen in your life, which means that something that has been used for a long time, like, uh, um, you know, okay, okay, let's talk about what is surgical mesh. Surgical mesh is if you imagined yourself standing at your sink and holding your sieve um, and rinsing off some berries, surgical mesh is a loose, much more um, flexible, but but that same sort of thing. It's a screen, and it's meant to not react badly to the body, yet last for years and years and years indefinitely, right? It's meant to yes. hold up parts of the body that need internally that need support. And it's been around for a long time. There have been improvements over the years, and someone came up with this, this idea that they thought was an improvement but really was a big change, which was inserting the mesh through the vagina. Now, if we think of how, you know, isn't it better to remove an ectopic pregnancy through the vagina than by cutting open the abdomen? Well, sure. So wouldn't it be better to insert surgical mesh through the vagina then through the abdomen, again, there's logic, but it meant that it became a different device. There wasn't an incision for the surgeon to look and see, okay, I'm putting the set mesh in this exact place, and now I'm, you know, attaching it. It was done through the laparoscope, through the little, you know, fiber optic view tube, and it was a disaster, a disaster. Mm. And women ended up with this mesh eroding, um, coming out, just causing more damage to tissues, including their vagina. It's just awful. I've spoken with, I've met women in person who've been very damaged, and they never knew. They were, they, they, the, 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 some of them didn't even know this was going to be used in their surgery when they oh signed the form of, yes, I, I want a surgery to help with this prolapse or help with this other thing. So we've not only tried to highlight this as a bad device that needs to be, you know, off the market and rethought, but using it as an example of the FDA needs the power to require companies to show that something is safe and effective in humans before it's approved. And, you know, the loophole that says this is like something that's already on the market. We just get to go on through the, you know, the, um, the basic materials testing. Uh, it just needs to be closed. And there's some great champions, um, one of whom is not, doesn't, is not quite in your state but not too far away, Congressman Markey oh, yes. from Massachusetts, great champion on this issue, really a caring um, man, and the legislation he introduced isn't going too far too fast right now, but it um, we're we're staunchly behind it, and it would it would bring some common sense reforms to you know if a device is going is important to the health or could have uh, harm the health of someone if it if it doesn't work as intended it needs to be tested in humans first. So so you're working with. Um Quite a, a, a lot of these kinds of things, and I, I, we we have a, a few minutes left, but um, so we're not going to be get to all of it. I know that you're doing work about weight loss drugs, and there is work about some of the HIV prevention drugs and how that's affecting women. And um, I, I think one one thing that I know some people have asked is there's been some different recommendations about mammograms 
Um, yes. and so let's talk about that and, 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 and for sure. And I want to direct everybody to the uh, nwhn.org, the website, where there's lots and lots of information about all, yeah. all the things, all of these things and more. So mammograms aren't great, but they're the only thing we have aside from knowing your body and, and recognizing a change. Um, every study that's been done has shown that they are somewhat effective, maybe about 15% effective. So not so good compared to a pap smear, which is more like 80% effective or certain other kinds of um, screening. They seem to be more effective um, once you're past menopause, which on average is about 50, less effective for women in their 40s. That's unfortunate because um, the cancers that develop them can seem to be more aggressive. And the frustration is that even in this age range of women in their 40s um, and up, and even with this limited effectiveness, more isn't better. You know, that, that, that phrase you used earlier when we were talking. Yes. You'd think, well, if it doesn't work very well, I better do it more often. So I certainly better do it every year. It doesn't seem to make much of a difference. And it's probably because there's lots of different kinds of breast cancer, some of which are so fast growing that um, that um, catching them even every year doesn't change the course of them as much as you want them to. They've, they, they spread quickly um, as well as grow quickly. So Others are slow growing, and it sort of doesn't make much of a difference if you find it two years apart. You're, it, it, you're as, as likely to um, be able to, to uh, be saved and cured um, right. if you find it two years apart as one year apart. So we, we are very empathetic to women who are worried about breast cancer and, and want that screening <laughs> to help them, um, you know, o- avoid uh, dying of breast cancer. There you but go. we have to be honest and, and say the studies just don't, don't, don't support good. it. Oh, Cindy, we are running out of time. That music tells us we have come to the end, and, and we just can, can keep going on. So let's yeah. direct people to the Breast Cancer Coalition, and they, I know there's a lot of information about this there, and, and uh, also at nationalwomenshealthnetwork.org. Thank you so much. We've been listening. You've been listening to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. Thanks so much to Cindy Pearson, Executive Director of the National Women's Health Network, for being our guest today. If you've missed any of this program, feel free, and and you'll be able to find it online in the Public Affairs Archives at WERU.org. I want to thank Amy Brown for engineering, Petra Hall for production assistance, and thanks always to all of our WERU supporters. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and thank you so much for tuning in today on Healthy Options. And this is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay 